the Holy Gospel according to Mark, the fourth chapter. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. In an age where the God some people speak of is sometimes so gently disposed as to be as innocuous as, I don't know, Spongebob or something, it's easy for us to miss the situation beneath the promise Moses promises on behalf of God to the people of Israel in his farewell address to them in the book of Deuteronomy before his death, that situation being the people's fear that God is so good and so holy and so righteous and so God compared to them and their not goodness and their not holiness and their not righteousness that were they ever unprotected to stand in the unfiltered presence of God or to hear the unmuted voice of God or to see the unveiled face of God, they would not survive the encounter. If we hear God directly, we will die, is the way they put it in Deuteronomy 18.16 to which Moses does not say, come on, people, God is a nice guy. He's like, I don't know, Spongebob or something. No, the people, fearing that Moses will die and leave them soon, and knowing that for all these years he's stood as kind of this defensive line and mediator between them and God, the people now say, when you're gone, if we hear God directly, we will die, to which Moses says that God says that they are dead to rights right about that. In the Old Testament, you see, God's awesomeness was understood to be so awesome as to be more than awesome, even more so of late, given the dilution with which we've diluted the word awesome to mean any more as nearly as I can tell, not much more than that, for example, this pizza is really good, awesome. In the Old Testament understanding, God's unfiltered righteousness an unmuted voice, 
and unveiled face are so awesome with genuine old school awesomeness as to be dangerous. It's why, for example, in the Old Testament, those heavenly creatures called seraphim, whose sole purpose in eternity is to fly around the throne of God, praising God, are given two extra sets of wings which they can use to cover themselves and to cover their eyes as they do so. Because why? Because there aren't sunscreens or sun glasses strong enough to protect you and your eyes from the bright awesomeness of the glory of God. This might be random, but I was thinking of that this week by thinking of nuclear fission. Okay, that sounded even more random than I meant it to be. But I was thinking about nuclear fission, the process which unleashes the power of nuclear power and of nuclear weapons. Nobody is in the room looking on as that process takes place. Were they to be, they would disintegrate into a puddle of atoms. The Old Testament understanding, though lacking that kind of a scientific analogy, is that the same would be true for anyone who got too near to the creator of atoms. But that... Moses says to the people in our first reading for today is not the desire of your creator God. And so, Moses says, when I am gone, God will send another. A prophet like me, who will come from among you, to whom God will speak, and through whom in ways that you can understand and survive. God will speak to you. It's a promise that Jews and Christians believe was kept in many and various and partial ways in God's communications with God's people through the words of that bold and boldly odd group of people known as the Old Testament prophets. But it's a promise both Jews and Christians will be ultimately kept when God would send God's people God's Messiah, whom Christians believe is a promise God kept when what John calls the eternal word of God, the awesome foreverness of God, emptied itself of enough of its awesomeness so as to be able to be contained in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, one of us who was somehow nevertheless one of God. With a voice now that could be heard by human ears, but which nevertheless was the voice, the voice of God. And whom we meet in our gospel text for today. As early in his ministry, says Mark in chapter 1, Jesus and at least some of his disciples, his first ones, went to Capernaum, Kephar Nahum, the village of Nahum, which is a little fishing town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee from which some of his disciples, including Peter and James and John and Andrew, hailed. And, says our text, when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught, 
and they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority. Not as the scribes. What did that sound like, do you suppose? How did authority that was genuinely authoritative make itself known as such and hearable as such and for that matter knowable as truly such? And is there any such an actual authoritative voice that we today in our is truth fake news world can hear and know and even dare act upon with certainty for we know that it is the voice filtered though it may be indeed filtered as it must be but nevertheless a voice that is the authoritative voice of God calling our names into the future and into the kingdom and into specific acts and paths of kingdom service. Well, what I want to say is what most of my more conservative fundamentalist friends will, of course, immediately say, an authoritative word from God, duh, the Bible, which, though I'm not the most conservative person I know, I actually believe. I believe that the Bible, like Moses and the prophets, is a mediator, a filter, if you will, through whose words which we can see and read and hear are there to be heard the words of God which we can't see and read and hear. But as a miraculously and marvelously divine and human undertaking of that effort, separating and filtering the divine from the human in the divine and human thing that we call the Bible can be very complicated when it gets down to cases. And I believe that those who make the Bible less complicated when it gets down to cases, in fact, end up making the Bible less divine and more human because the God whom we've made so uncomplicated as to be understandable, so understandable that we, complete, we humans completely understand, that isn't God anymore. Okay, so I've been sick, darn it. Cold, flu, bronchitis, all of the above, I don't know. My doctor never got all that specific. She just gave me meds and told me to rest and drink fluids and that it could take a couple weeks before I stopped coughing. So stay home and don't cough on people. Well, what do doctors know? She said it would take two weeks. <laughs> I was better in, seriously, 14 days. The first week I did very little but sleep. The second week I was a little less tired, so I was able to sleep and then read between naps. I read a book that's been on my list for a while. It was uh, Eric Metaxas' biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was a great read. I'm still processing the ways in which reading it, I think, has already changed me, and I think is not done yet. I think it's still trying to change me. It's hard to imagine anyone who more steadfastly sought clear and authoritative words from God 
against a backdrop in which questions of authority had real-world stakes which were any higher than they were for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in Nazi Germany at a time when, among other things, if you wanted a job, you had to sign an oath of ultimate allegiance to Adolf Hitler, which included if you wanted a job in the state-funded German church. A church which in those days was also told by the state must keep itself pure by eliminating from its membership and leadership anyone whose genetics were impure, either for being Jewish or for being um, foreign or for being weak. It's not widely known, but the Nazis systematically killed thousands and thousands of the disabled in Germany. They regarded them as wasters of food that should be eaten by the strong. Bonhoeffer never signed the oath of ultimate loyalty to Hitler and vigorously opposed what was called the Aryan Clause, mandating genetic purity and sameness in Hitler's Germany's church. That, of course, put him on Gestapo watch lists, which was a dangerous place to be. As a brilliant theologian, Bonhoeffer completed his doctorate in theology when he was 21. As a brilliant theologian, he was offered a teaching position at Union Seminary in New York in America until the danger would be over. He declined. If his people were going to suffer, he said, his calling was to be there suffering with them. He read the Bible in its entirety, twice a year. He had a regimen of reflecting on an assigned Bible verse for 30 minutes, twice a day. As an academic, he could and did academically study the Bible with the best academically scholarly Bible studiers in the world. He was a dear friend of Karl Barth. But in his twice-a-day prayer and reflection times, and in his daily devotional Bible reading times, he didn't study the Bible, he listened to it. He sought to listen specifically for words that he believed were the Word of God for him. In the end, this man who largely identified as a pacifist joined a group of people who were conspiring to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Though against his pacifistic convictions, he came to believe that this was his God-given faithful thing to do. Not because it was right, And maybe you think this is a distinction without a difference, but I think this is a distinction that differentiates him. Bonhoeffer did not get involved in the plan to kill Hitler because he thought it was right. He expressly did not believe that. Thou shalt not kill, says the Bible clearly. And Bonhoeffer believed that killing Hitler would be a clear violation of that commandment and therefore it would be sinful. But he believed that what Hitler was doing to others, especially the Jews, but not only the Jews, was a sin, the consequences of which were of such a magnitude that it needed to be stopped, no matter what it took, even if what it took was sinfully violating 
one of the clearest commandments there is in Scripture, the commandment not to kill. One thing I respect about Bonhoeffer is that he never claimed what he was doing was right. Quite the opposite. He did, however, claim that it was faithful. And unlike too many who try to make all things too simple, he was willing to let the complicatedness of that remain complicated and ultimately remain, he prayed, wrapped in grace. The book that Gloria Day members are invited to read and study together this Lent includes a chapter on Bonhoeffer. The author says that in her opinion, Bonhoeffer's decision to participate in those assassination plans is the clearest example she knows of someone doing what Luther counseled in his way, way often misunderstood words. Sin boldly, but believe more boldly still. The plot to assassinate Hitler failed. A bomb was exploded with him in the room, but he survived it. He claimed that to be evidence that God was on his side. A God other than himself, of course, was someone Hitler did not believe in. His God verbiage was rather a manipulative and patently cynical appeal to the pieties and sensibilities of the German masses. For his role in the failed assassination attempt, Bonhoeffer and the other conspirators were executed at Flossenburg concentration camp in eastern Germany near the Czech border. He was taken to Flossenburg minutes after leading his fellow prisoners elsewhere in Sunday morning worship, and he was executed by hanging at dawn the next day, just two weeks to the day before Flossenburg was liberated by U.S. troops of the 90th Infantry Division. Bonhoeffer's remains were not found. They had been cremated and scattered. Jesus, says our text for today, spoke with obvious authority, authority in his teaching and authority in his confrontations with and command over unclean spirits, which would be the Bible's way of saying spirits that are unfit for the presence of God and incompatible with the desires of God. He did so, we know, because he was the Son of God. Bonhoeffer acted with authority that he believed to be the authority of faithfulness to the will of God, though seeking and finding that path for him was something he found to be hardly obvious and seldom 100% unambiguous. In Jesus' case, following that path and continuing to battle spirits opposed to God would lead him to a cross where he, Paul in 2 Corinthians says, would become our sin, put to death on a cross so that we in turn might become his righteousness, raised from the dead for life that is new, 
and forever. In Bonhoeffer's case, following that path, battling spirits as evil as spirits have ever been in their opposition to God would lead him, by his own confession, to sin and to be found guilty for it, not only before the kangaroo courts of the Third Reich, the kingdom of Nazi Germany, but in his mind, too, guilty before the perfect righteousness, which is the court in the courtrooms of the kingdom of God. He believed that in this world in which sin has so thoroughly done what it's done, sometimes choices with at least some sin about them are the only ones we have. Which takes us back to us and our text and our confrontations in both settings between spirits that are of God and spirits that are not and longings for a word that is authoritative and clear and from God and for us. Here, having spent this week with our text and Jesus and Bonhoeffer is what I believe I've been given for us for today. When Jesus calls a person to follow him, he is not calling them to follow them to heaven, but rather to follow him into the world. He's got heaven covered. He invites you to trust him on that. When Jesus calls a person to follow him, he's not calling them above all to be successful, but above all to be faithful. When Jesus calls a person to follow him, he's not calling them to expend their deepest passions avoiding what is wrong, but rather doing what is right. There are powers in the world and kings and kingdoms in the world which oppress and enslave and marginalize. These spirits of these powers are not of God no matter what color flag they are waving. Stand up to them. There are those in the world who've been and are oppressed and enslaved and marginalized. These are beloved of God. No matter what color flag they've been born beneath. Stand up for them. And in all things, all things, because this is the authoritative word beyond all authoritative words for those who call Jesus Lord, in all things, all things and all places, love boldly. And love will lead you where it will lead you. And it might be messy sometimes. And it might cost you sometimes. And it might hurt sometimes but it will also heal. Indeed, for what's most deeply broken in this world, it is love alone that can heal. So love and love boldly. For love is of God. And as such, it is love and love only that will lead you and one day welcome you home. Amen.